The miraculous is an everyday occurrence in a national park. Seeing a bald eagle land in a branch above your head if you're in Yellowstone, along the Yellowstone River, you know, seeing a geyser erupt, standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon or in Yosemite Valley, seeing a lunar rainbow in the spray of that same waterfall, which is called a moonbow. And it was just the reflected light of the moon, which of course is sunlight reflecting off the moon. And then that light literally goes right through the spray of the fall. But going through the fall, it's transformed. It's broken up into, you know, all the different wavelengths of light that we call a rainbow. And you can literally see these soft pastels of light and shade in the middle of the night in Yosemite Valley during a full moon. And, and that's what makes these environments so unique and what makes them so powerful. And you feel like that you've arrived home, something profound has happened. Welcome to The Open Air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. In today's episode, a meditation on how the raw beauty of our national parks can rearrange your molecules and allow you to live in the miraculous. All this from Yosemite park ranger and poet Shelton Johnson. He's a historian, a book author, and an advocate to get more people into our national parks. Shelton's invited more people into our national parks than any other person in America, including an invitation to Oprah Winfrey. Be sure to stick around to the end to find out what happened when she received his impassioned letter. Well, Shelton, I'm so delighted you're here, and I I think we have to start by acknowledging that you work in one of the most stunning, awe-inspiring places on Earth. I know you've written and spoken about what it is to behold those sites, but you've also talked about another kind of site to behold there. And it's the joy of looking at the people who are looking at Yosemite for the very first time, especially people that really have no concept of what it would be like to be surrounded by such grandeur. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'd love to start today, because I think it says so much about um, why you do what you do, introducing people to this transformational wild beauty If you could begin by telling me about, there was a young man, I think it was from Compton, who stood, you know, with his mouth open, looking up at Yosemite Falls without moving for so long that someone had to go finally ask if he was okay. If if you remember that, I'd love it if you could tell Mm -hmm. me about that. Yeah, yeah. I frequently work with inner city kids, and they could be Asian American, African American, Latinx. And this particular group was a group of young people who had never visited any national park before. And their timing couldn't have been any better because they arrived in the springtime and it was the spring following a good winter snowpack. So the waterfalls were just amazing at that point. And we were walking up to the base of Lower Yosemite Fall. And, you know, we were all going up there as a group. But at some point, I noticed that he wasn't there, that there was, there was someone missing. And I looked back and he was right at that point where after you, you round a bend in the trail, you have this really beautiful, spectacular view of Lower Yosemite Fall. And he was literally transfixed by what he was seeing. And I think that he was also transfixed by what he was feeling in response to what was around him filling the air. I mean, there was the sound of thunder, not coming from clouds, but coming from all this water literally falling out of the sky. 
there was the spray that was just blowing constantly like a tempest over the footbridge at Lower Yosemite Fall. And as we were, got closer and closer to the fall, as we walked up, you know, from the, from the, from the bus stop area, it, it was starting out, starting out, it was a clear, sunny day. But as we got closer and closer to the, to the fall, it started getting cloudier and cloudier. And it wasn't clouds. It was the mist generated by such a volume of water falling out of the sky. Wow. And so he felt that. He felt that he was literally transitioning from one environment to another environment, from one place in the world to another world entirely. And so by the time he rounded that last bend, he could just feel it. He could hear it. He could see it. It was all around him, and it was all over him, and he was within that. And, and that's what I think grabbed hold of him, and that's what he was responding to. And so I went up to him, because he had stayed a little bit behind from everyone else, and I asked him, are you okay? And his response was, and it, didn't, it wasn't immediate either. It was just, it was a pause. And his response was, I, I'm fine. I just had no idea that such beauty existed. And when he said that, he wasn't even looking at me. He was still transfixed by the beauty that is Lower Yosemite Fall after a winter snowpack when the sun is shining and there's a rainbow. I mean, it was just, he was responding to everything, not only that he was seeing, but what he was seeing, how it made him feel. And, and I could see that in his eyes and, and how he was holding his body. And it was, you know, it's a typical thing here in Yosemite. But it's not a typical thing in Compton. It's not a right. typical thing in L.A. <laughs> right. or Detroit or Chicago. I mean, I, the thing that I always say to folks is that in national parks, and especially in parks like Yosemite, the ordinary or the extraordinary is ordinary. Mm, right. And, th and that's what makes these environments so unique and what makes them so powerful is that you, you, the miraculous is an everyday occurrence in a national park. It's what... I think I've heard you say something living in the miraculous. It sounds like those moments when you're experiencing that, you're lifted onto that plane of living in the miraculous. And I wonder when you think about like what effect that has, especially on someone who hasn't experienced it, it's almost like a, a soul cleansing moment. Like what do you think is going on, you know, in the mind and the spirit of someone that's having an experience like that? And then how does it transform them moving forward? You know, what I think it is, I think that it is um, a situation where most people have gotten to a point as they age where they just expect to see something different or unusual. It's like, it's like, it's like impressing someone from New York. Like they've seen it all, <laughs> right? You know, that sort of thing. Right. And so we're so jaded when we become adults that we, we, we've seen so much, we've experienced so much that we're, now, we're no longer surprised by something that's a little bit different. We just go, well, I haven't seen that before, but it's not that big of, of, of a reaction. But as I said, in, in national parks, especially parks like Yosemite, the ordinary is extraordinary. And so for this young man, nothing pre, predestined him for Yosemite. Nothing that he had heard in, within his family, nothing that he had heard or seen in the classroom, nothing that he had experienced in church prepared him for the confluence, the literal and figurative confluence of water, atmosphere, and light combining together in this elixir that he did not expect to experience in this world. When we 
say, you and I say we're going to a national park, you and I being culturally affiliated, accustomed to that experience, we know what each of us are, are talking about. Yeah. But for people who have not had the experience of national parks, they make this translation into what they've experienced, the local city park or the county park, which could be great, you know, but it's not Yellowstone. It's not the Grand Canyon. It's not Zion. And so I've just seen from, in my, with, with my own eyes how young people who have not been predestined or pre-shaped, if you will, uh -huh. for an experience of being in such an environment, when they are in it, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Well, and even if it isn't functioning in the moment on a, a spiritual level, I feel like there's a, a level of beauty that's just stopping you, like it stopped him in his tracks. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that experience, like what comes next? Like, do you think there's a, a, a shift or a transformation or does it happen and then pass? Or like, what, what do you think is going on there in like right after those experiences happen? An arrange, a rearrangement of one's molecules, a, re, yeah. re, a rearrangement of who you thought you were. It's just, yeah. it's, it's a sort of experience that once it happens, it leaves its stamp at the cellular level. It's in the blood, it's in the bones, it's in the psyche, it's in our dreams. I mean, think of it this yeah. way. You and I right now are having this conversation because when I was a boy, my dad who served in the military was stationed in Germany and my wife, my, my mom and my dad and my brother all accompanied him to Germany. And there was a family trip to Berchtesgaden, which is now a national park. It wasn't when I was a kid, but it's, it's now a national park. And Berchtesgaden is in the Bavarian Alps. So it was my first experience of mountains, which was a baptism. And so when John Muir used that term baptism, he was not being uh, poetic. It really did feel that way. It really, ex I experienced it that way. And it was such a powerful experience to be at that overlook in Berchtesgaden and see clouds a thousand feet beneath my feet and see the shadows of those clouds a thousand feet below the clouds themselves. To see these snow banners just unfurling from the peaks surrounding me and then, then just the play of light from the blue sky going through the clouds, lighting up the world beneath. And it was like the beginning of, of the world itself. It was creation happening in front of me each moment that my heart was beating. And I never forgot that moment. And those are the moments that I want all young people to have, especially kids of color who rarely have the opportunity to have those experiences because unfortunately, they're, they're what I put it this way, they, they're experiencing what I refer to as a crisis of translation. When they live in these urban inner city areas, when they live in rural areas often, they, what they know as a park is, a, is the local city park or a town park or a county park. Uh, even st and state parks can be beautiful, as, just as beautiful too. But if they don't have access to even a state park, when they hear park, it could have a completely different translation. So inner city kids, whether they're in Chicago, in, De in Detroit, in New York, their perception of park, if they've not experienced it, is, oh, that place that my mother told me don't be in after sunset. Or that place my dad told me you need to avoid, you know what happens there. For inner city kids, inner city youth, that it may be the translation for the word park. So when these folks hear me going on and on, you know, just singing the praises of the national park idea, they think that, what is this guy on? What is he, he's so excited. I mean, why is he so excited about this? And right. then when, when they're actually in the parks and they are seeing, hearing, touching, and being touched by the presence of something higher than all of us all around them, then they get it. 
Right. But that's why, that, and that's the challenge is just getting them here yeah. so that they can have these experiences. Yeah, there's just no frame of reference for that until you experience it for yourself. And yeah. the way you talk about, you know, Detroit, and I know you growing up in Detroit, having an experience like you were talking about in Germany, which I, I heard you call your, a, a baptism of, of spirit, right? And I know there mm-hmm. were other experiences like that, you know, having grown up in Detroit, going to Yellowstone for the first time. Uh, that was another big moment for you, right? And um, can you tell me how a, a, a dishwashing job at Yellowstone led you to this extraordinary <laughs> life in the national park system and, and what that did for you the first time you had your frame of reference just blown apart? Well, I mean, that's the thing that's so crazy about the whole thing is that in one sense, it's amazing. It's miraculous that you and I are even having this conversation <laughs> about national parks because I was not destined to be a national park ranger. Hmm. I, was a, I was a student in the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Michigan. My, my specific emphasis was poetry. And then one summer, I had finished a year of my master's. I wanted to do something different during the summer. And I just happened to... I had a roommate who had a, a blank application to work for the concession in Yellowstone. And on a complete lark, hmm. I thought, well, you know what? I got all these other irons in the fire. Let's, let's just do that. And <laughs> I send it in and weeks, I had forgotten completely about it. And then weeks later, everything else that I had planned on my list of what am I going to do this summer didn't pan out, but I got a, a job offer at, to work as a dishwasher at the old faithful Inn at wow. the upper geyser base in Yellowstone national park. And I talked to one of my roommates and I said, God, I'm in graduate school at the University of Michigan. Why would I work as a dishwasher? And what and the thing is, he reminded me of an earlier conversation when I said that in order to be a good writer, it's, it's not just talent, it's also experience. You yes. have to have experienced things. You have to have seen things with your own eyes, heard things with your own ears, and felt it with your own heart. Mm-hmm. And that's why some of the great books that have ever been written were literally stories that were experienced by those who wrote those stories. And I thought to myself that, that very few African-Americans have written about the national park experience. So why don't I go to Yellowstone? That's just a part of African-American history that you don't hear about, meaning the experience not of being in rural America, but being in wild America. Mm. And so I thought, okay, those are the two paths to being acknowledged as a genius. One, step one, be a genius. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think I had that one. But step two, (laughs) celebrate through your art something that means a lot to you that no one of your culture or very few of your culture have ever experienced or let alone celebrated. And that's the path that I took. And that's what led me to Yellowstone. But what I didn't expect, I did not expect that going to Yellowstone, going to Montana would be going home. I didn't expect that because, because of that earlier experience when I was five years old in the Bavarian Alps, when I arrived in Gardner, Montana, and saw, and this was springtime, you know, springtime in Yellowstone means it's winter. I mean, that's the joke in Yellowstone. There's three seasons, <laughs> right. July, August, and winter. It's <laughs> always winter. It's snowed every month of the year in Yellowstone. So there I was, and I'm looking around me, and I'm seeing all these peaks rising around me, you know, just in the area around Gardner, Montana. And it, it struck a chord. It struck, it was like this bell that had been struck. When I was five years old, it resonated through my entire life, and it was struck again when I arrived in Yellowstone. So for me, Mm. strange as it may seem, arriving in Yellowstone, stepping off that bus, having that bison walk by, which is a normal thing in Yellowstone, bison walk by occasionally, (laughs) for me, it was... It was like I was back in Berkeley, I was back in the Alps, and I had and I had remembered that experience. But in Yellowstone, I re- I felt it again. 
Wow. I relived it again. And that's what was so powerful about it. I felt I had come home. And I have to tell you, when you're African-American, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and you feel like when you uh, uh, show up in Montana that you've arrived home, something profound has happened. No kidding. <laughs> well, especially when you're not seeing a lot of faces that look like your own face, right? I mean, you've talked about much of your life's work and in recent years has revolved around showing people of color that these wild places belong to them and can offer mm -hmm. these profound benefits, spiritual, psychological, mental, you know, wellness in, in all forms. Um, and this is in large part because you didn't see people that looked like you when you first started right. going to these places. Can you talk about what what happened in our history um, that has led people of color to becoming, you know, disassociated from wild places or, or being made to feel unwelcome in those places? Yeah. And, and then how you believe that can be remedied? It's all rooted in history, and specifically within African-American culture, it's rooted within African-American history. And, and that specific time period is a period that we know as Jim, as Jim Crow, mm -hmm. post-Reconstruction. It's that period where there's a, there was a wave of violence among some Euro-Americans against African-Americans. Uh, this is where the, that fear that many African-Americans today have of the woods, like they don't want to go out into the woods, and that whole notion of the woods and the terror or terrors that await you in the woods is literally rooted in that period of Jim Crow, separate and unequal, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan subsequent to the, the end of the Civil War, all these other militia or hate groups that were formed after the Civil War, because there was no need for them hmm. before the Civil War, because we were still enslaved. You, you don't have to enforce rules and regulations on an enslaved person. It's built in. Mm -hmm. It's at the, you know, it's at the cellular level. You're just, that's, that's, that's life as you, as you know it. But, but once you've been granted that liberty, which no human being should ever have to be granted, it should just be there, then there's a reaction to that. And that reaction in, in the Deep South led to the formation of these groups that I just mentioned. And as a result, we began to associate the woods, these environments, these natural environments with spaces where racial violence had, had, had occurred historically and were occurring in that present. Mm -hmm. So when I spoke to my dad about this, who was born and raised in Spartanburg, South Carolina, it was a similar sort of thing. He grew up with he grew up in that time period, and he remembers the KKK. He remembers the, the lynchings and all of the other uh, 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 activities, if you will, that took place during that time. Activities that really are terrorism in, in the in the purest sense. Yeah. And uh, he didn't, he wasn't interested in going camping because he was a soldier. So from his point of view, marching was a forced march. It is <laughs> right. something you do. You're in a war. So it's not like uh, climb the mountains and get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you as sunshine in the autumn leaves. That works for John Muir. That works for someone who has the space to not be uh, economically driven to make the choice to become a soldier. It's not that so much my father was driven by patriotism. That certainly it was, it was probably there. But much of it had to do with economics. And so mm. many people that are working class are forced into making decisions that are rooted in economics, yeah. not necessarily rooted in anything else. And so all of that was kind of playing, was playing into that. Is your father still with us these days, by the way? Unfortunately, yes, he is, but he's not. I mean, he's passed away, but he's always with me because my dad's in me. Yeah, know? absolutely. You know, so he's, and he lived long enough, luckily, to see um, the Ken Burns National Park. Uh. Home, and he was very proud of me being in that, and and I have to tip my hat if I was wearing a hat right now to Ken, for because Ken actually cut a he, he created a, a CD or DVD of my particular role in the film and the segments in the film within which I appeared, and he cut that 
and then sent it to me. So my dad had a chance to see the National Park film before he passed. By the time uh, it was on PBS in 2009, my dad had already passed away. Uh, but he saw my role in that film. And so that's wonderful. That was great. Yeah, yeah, I was going to I was going to ask like what he thought of, you know, given where he grew up and what he thought about what you were what you've been doing and the fact that you were so called to these places. What was his reaction? Well, the thing is, I, I, I think I, at some point I told my dad, well, dad, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> you took me to Berchtesgaden, the Bavarian Alps, <laughs> you took me to the Black Forest. If I hadn't had that that baptism in the Black Forest, which is now a national park, if I hadn't had that baptism in the sky, which we know today as Berchtesgaden, I probably would have stayed in my NFA program in poetry at the University of Michigan, become a professor of English Lit, mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I probably would be, that's what I'd be doing now, a tenured professor somewhere in academia. Mm. But because there was no direct path between what I was pursuing, I mean, again, my background is classical music and literature. Mm-hmm. There's no path from that to Yellowstone, right. to Yosemite, to Great Basin. It, this was a detour, but it was actually a confluence of spirit that, that pulled my body to where I was meant to be. That's incredible. I mean, to think how one experience like that at age five can have that profound of a lifelong impact. And as a a dad of a five-year-old, I'm thinking right now, like that, that cuts deep. Like what we do with our children and show our children Mm -hmm. of this world is going to have a big ripple effect. And that's amazing what it did for you. It is amazing because the thing to keep in mind is that when you're a child, Everything is miraculous. You're, when you're a kid, it's the first, if someone holds a pencil in front of you, it's the first time you've ever seen a pencil. If it's a stapler, first time you've ever seen a stapler. If it's a telephone, a pot, a pen, a cigarette, a, a cigar, a fork, whatever it is, it's the first time. And, and then, listen, I'm getting choked up just thinking about this. Then, <laughs> So if you have that in the background, how do you respond when it's your first giant sequoia, if it's your first geyser, Mm -hmm. if it's your first bear, if it's your first wild river, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you, I mean, that's just off the charts. And I think that that's why these experiences of young people in parks are the most profound experiences that we can give them. That is the greatest gift any parent can give to their child is taking them out into nature, not nature with a small case in, but nature with a big capital in bold face, biggest font possible. Yes. Nature with a capital in because that's Yellowstone, that's Zion, that's Grand Canyon, that's Arches, that's Yosemite and Sequoia. Well, and I know there are really countless ways that you've been inviting people uh, to experience what those places, like Yosemite and Zion, and all these places have to offer. Um, but I'd love to focus in on one really special invitation you sent that had some reverberation around it. Uh, several years back, you sent a letter to Oprah, uh, and not yeah. too long after, uh, she came out and actually camped in Yosemite. And I would love to know, like, A, um, as much as you're willing to share, what exactly you <laughs> wrote to her in that letter, uh, and B, what was the experience like of her visit, and then what was the impact that followed it? Well, you know, the thing that that really was the foundation for that message to Oprah was just my own awareness, beginning in Yellowstone, of of how few African-Americans and other people of color I regularly witnessed experiencing Yellowstone. I remember just thinking, I'm daily meeting people from all over the world. How is it that these people from all over the world, they heard about Yellowstone, the people from England, from Germany, from Switzerland, you know, from Austria, from 
from the Czech Republic, from Russia, wherever it is that they were from, from South America, Central America, the, the whole world yeah. to a great degree was there in Yellowstone. But I remember thinking, I hardly ever see another African-American besides myself, a few other folks that worked for the concession, and then that would be about it. Mm-hmm. And so, so I started thinking, what can I do? This is just wrong. It's just wrong that my own people as children and even as adults are not experiencing the wonder that is the, this experience of being you know, in, in a national park, engaged by a national park, pulled into the experience of being in a national park. And that's what started me going, mm-hmm. literally right there, was that I felt that it was just wrong in so many different ways for a, a, young, for a person of, that is an American to grow up in this country and to have a childhood that is not experienced or rooted in a national park. Yeah. Because this is the whole thing. I mean, look at all the kids right now who are, are enamored of the whole uh, Harry Potter series, which is great. But still, I mean, they're enamored, of, but it's make believe. They're enamored mm-hmm. of, of, like when I was a kid, I remember reading The Lord of the Rings, you know, J.R.R. Yep. Tolkien, and just yep. fell in love with that book. But no one tells these kids that 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 Endor is Redwood National Park, or, or that Tatooine <laughs> yes. is Death Valley. You know, right. it's like all these all these landscapes that park goers routinely visit are real. And so to tell a kid that, you know, indoor is actually real, yeah. <laughs> you know, tattooing is actually real. It's not special effects. Those are national parks. So you can visit these, these extraordinary worlds of the imagination by just getting a national park pass. It's as simple as that. Yeah. But, but that's the, the communication that has not really been inflected toward communities of color for many for many years. It's, it really started to shift in the 1960s. But even since then, the numbers are still fairly low, surprisingly low, considering it's a communication that's been happening for over 50 years. Yeah. So all I'm doing in Yosemite is furthering those efforts at communication so that I can say something, present something in such a way that it just rouses that curiosity. I got to see that for myself. And when you tell people that Yosemite is a place where in the springtime, like literally right now, when the moon is full, you can see a rainbow in the middle of the night. That's called the the lunar rainbow or moonbow. Hmm. You know, people think there's no such thing. You can't see a rainbow in the middle of the night. Well, you can. Why? Because again, in national parks, the extraordinary is ordinary. Now, those are the magical experiences. I love that. Well, and, you know, getting back to these invitations, like, you know, A, like what what was it about Oprah that you wanted her to come? What did you say? And then w- was there the intended result? Like what happened after? Well, yeah. And see, the reason why I wrote to Oprah was that I felt that African-Americans did not, as a group, had not really received this communication of welcome. Mm-hmm. The, the communication had been issued going all the way back to the 1960s when John F. Kennedy was president, uh, Stuart Udall was the Secretary of the Interior, and George Hartsock was the director of the National Park Service. That was in the mid-1960s. That's when things really started to change internally mm-hmm. within the Park Service, as far as especially African-Americans becoming uh, rangers for the first time. And, of course, that actually happened with, um, you know, with our former director, Bob Stanton, who basically began his career in the National Park Service as a ranger in Grand Teton National Park. And he's from Texas. And there's some great, great places in Texas. But there's nothing in Texas that compares to uh, the you know, Grand Teton National Park. But it's like apples and oranges. I mean, Big Bend, amazing. Guadalupe Mountains, amazing. But he had that experience in the Tetons. 
And that all started in terms of African Americans becoming part of the National Park Service. It really didn't start until the mid-1960s. Wow. And so, so, so now African-Americans are throughout the national park system, but not as many in rural or wilderness areas, especially wilderness areas. You usually find African-Americans who work for the National Park Service in, in Boston or Philadelphia, New York, um, you know, San, San Francisco area. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different experience. But, but that variety is implicit to the national park idea. I mean, everything from homesteading, to to Klondike Gold Rush, to the highest mountain in the contiguous United States, Mount Whitney and Sequoia National Park, and everything in between. Right. Well, you mentioned like the invitation, but then there is also just the pure representation, right? And I think, I imagine that's what happened when someone like Oprah shows up and people see that. That's just sending a different message than the implicit invitation, like the official invitation of, of course, your welcome is different than the cultural one, right? I assume that's what yeah. you were getting at yeah. there is the cultural one. Well, I just was thinking that something as simple as African-Americans as a people had never been issued an invitation, a specific invitation mm. of welcome to the national parks. And like it says in the Roosevelt Arch leading into the north entrance of, of Yellowstone, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Well, we, for many, many decades, centuries, were not the people that they were referring to. Mm-hmm. And so post-civil rights movement, we are now the people. We've always been the people, but we are now perceived by the dominant culture as being the people. And so my feeling was that, that, that who would be better to issue an invitation of welcome to the entire African-American community? Who in America has that level of of impact in terms of what she says or what he says, however you want to put it, mm-hmm. has this huge impact. And it just popped into my mind, Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. And so if she issued that statement, then it would be much more powerful than, uh, than an African-American ranger in Yellowstone or Yosemite issuing the exact same statement. So what? And that's, and that's why I wrote to her. And I, I wrote a letter and I knew that there was a high, high improbability yeah. that it would ever be read by Oprah because she receives thousands I'm of letters sure. every yeah. day, totally. every day, thousands of letters from all over the world. And but but one of some of her people, it, 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 that someone read it, it resonated. They showed it to their the person above them. It, it resonated with them. And it kept going up. It kept going up that chain yeah. until eventually I'm standing there in Yosemite at the south entrance waiting to meet this group of young, a group of African-American women who've been friends since childhood. And they thought they were going to a spa, but they're actually going camping in Yosemite. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to explain to them that it's my fault? I, I kept them from that spa. And they're going camping. And I had all that in my head. And then I'm looking up and I see, I said, why are these news people here? What, what, what's the deal with all these cameras? And I, I look over and I see two women approaching me. And I'm thinking, well, two, there's supposed to be five. What, who are these two? And then the one in front, I thought, gosh, she looks sort of familiar. And I said, that looks like Gail King. And then it just, that's when the, the proverbial penny dropped. I said, that is Gail King. And then I thought, if that's Gail King, and I turned my head and looked, and there was Oprah right yeah. there. Wow. And that's how that happened. That's how that happened. And, and uh, it, millions and millions of people all over the world saw those two episodes of, of Oprah uh, and Gail camping uh, in Yosemite. But it was more than a camping trip. It was a means of, of people seeing and hearing the, the queen of daytime television, 
having her roots go right down into Yosemite and experiencing a national park. I mean, they think it was the first time in, in the history of television that an African-American or, or two African-American women were experiencing the beauty of a national park. Wow. I bet. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, it was a huge thing. And, I've, and since then, I've met people from all over the world who saw those two episodes. Yeah. That's incredible. It, I'm curious, like, what do you think it was in your letter that kept it going up the chain all the way to her? Is there, is there anything in there that you can point to? Yeah, I, I can tell you exactly what I think it was. I think it was when you look at television and you look at our culture, so much of our, our culture is, is like, what can you do for me? It's all about me. How can you help me? Da, 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 da. It wasn't about me. This has never been about me. The Buffalo Soldier story has never been about me. It's about history. Mm. And so I wrote from this genuine place of sadness, of sorrow, that African-Americans who descend from African people, indigenous people, indigenous to the continent of Africa, who are the one group least likely to willingly seek out an experience of nature with a capital N, of wilderness. Yeah. And that is, a, that is a very strange thing when you think that Africans who are African-American, whose ancestors come from Africa, don't want to go into the outdoors. Yeah. And, and then you start thinking, what has happened in between from the arrival, you know, from the arrival in the new world to where we are now? What has happened that has changed our, profoundly changed our relationship with the outside, with the outdoors, with nature? And the, for me, the solution has always been to make that reconnection, simply reconnect, create that opportunity for African-Americans to, to experience that part that makes us all human again and that and the best environment for that for all human beings because we all if you go back far enough come from the wild well the best way to do that is reinsert ourselves into the national parks put ourselves into the national parks and then of course we discovered that oh we were already there like the buffalo soldier story in yes. yosemite and sequoia we were already there i'm so glad you bring up the buffalo soldiers i wanted to go there next um you know, like you said, there's there's an invitation, um, but when that invitation is paired with a story that connects you with the history that maybe you didn't even know about, it can be mm. something really profound. And um, well, can you take us back to the day? Actually, I know when you, you when you arrived in Yellowstone, you didn't see a lot of black faces, except one day in the library, the research library, right? You did see some black faces on a black and white photo. Tell me what that yeah. photo was and where it where it led you. Yeah, it was a photograph. It was in the Yosemite Research Library. Linda Ede was the research librarian at the time. And she was very helpful for me when I started doing all the, the research. And there was a photograph. It was just, you know, I mean, you're in a research lab. It would make sense that historic photographs would be on this wall or on that wall and so forth. But it, 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 it was like a thunderbolt when I saw it because I saw these five men on horseback who were obviously African-American. And then when I found out from Linda that these were African-American soldiers who were, who were serving as some of the first, quote-unquote, rangers anywhere in, in the world. Because this is, you know, the 24th Infantry arrived in 1899. The 9th Cavalry arrived in 1903 and 1904. And at that point, around 19, 1900, there was literally fewer than 10 national parks in the world, mm. in the entire world. Wow. So when they, so when these African Americans were serving as soldiers, de facto park rangers in the in the in the, the second and third oldest national parks in the country, Sequoia number two, Yosemite number three, there were only a handful of other national parks in the world. There's over a hundred national parks today, and so African Americans walk around right now, and we're thinking, 
oh, that's not something we do. That's not a black thing. We don't go, we don't camp, we don't hike, we don't go out in the nature. And we've been doing it since the beginning. Right. Since Olduvai Gorge, since Africa. That's what we've been doing. We walk. We've been doing that for a long time. You know, that's what human beings do. And so when they saw these, so when I saw this photograph of these African-American soldiers, I saw the story. It was like the tip of an iceberg and I touched it and it was electric that touch because I realized this is the rest of my career is getting this story out because I knew that it subverted and controverted all the attitudes that are internalized within African-Americans and externalized within Euro-American culture that black people don't do these sorts of things. So finding that. so, So literally for me, it was it was everything. It was every argument, every dream I've ever had about making parks diverse was right there in that image. What a discovery. Like I, I get chills when you, when you said, said of uncovering that and what that did and to see how it's changed. Like you said, the trajectory of what you've been doing as, as your work. And I know you've brought them to life in a lot of really fun and interesting ways in the park itself. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that story has, you know, not only found you, but you're helping it find a lot of other people and what you've seen as a, as a result of that. Well, it's a, it's, it immediately put me on that, the path of the gospel. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it gave the sacred kind of dimension to what I was trying to do. It was no longer simply quasi secular. It was definitely sacred because I, I remember thinking that the people need to hear this. They need, as you know, John Merrick sometimes talks about, you know, the gospel according to John Merrick, you know, or you, or you think about uh, the good word mm-hmm. and African-Americans needed to get this good word. And I mean that intentionally because as African people, we had an innate spiritual connection to the ground beneath our feet, to the sky overhead. No one needed to tell anyone that was an indigenous African about the sacredness of the world around them. They just knew it. It was just part of the culture. It was part of the air that they breathe and the light that filled their, their, their minds and their spirits. So for me, this was an extension of that of that tradition, the right. tradition of the black church, which is was often was outside, you know, during slavery. Mm. And it was finding that religion, finding that spirituality and reforging it and reconnecting with it. And I just thought the perfect environment to do that is the national parks. And I felt that to such a strong degree that at some point I recognized that what I was doing was not just engaging underserved audiences. It was literally moving again towards extending the civil rights movement itself. It was extending the work of Martin Luther King. It was extending the work of Medgar Evers. It was extending Coretta Scott King. And everyone that you've ever heard of tied to the civil rights movement, whether it's Jesse Jackson, whoever it was, this was an extension of that work. Because what do we, what do people want in life in general? They, they want to feel whole. They want to feel who they find out who they really are, feel this connection to something deeper at the spiritual level. Well, African-Americans at a deep spiritual level are Africans in America. And so for me, getting African-Americans into the wild was reintroducing them to that part of themselves that's truly African. At, at some point, all human beings on this planet, have they all have ancestors. We all have ancestors that were indigenous somewhere. Well, my feeling is you don't have to go all the way to Africa to reclaim that which is African. You can do it right here on the ancestral ancestral lands of the indigenous people here because it's still the earth. It's the same planet. Absolutely. And it's a return, like you said. And I feel like those moments like that 
young man in front of Yosemite Falls, I feel like there's there's something happening there where you're you're awestruck, right? But then I think you are connecting back, right, to a time when your ancestors were outside and in the wild all of the time. Yeah. And it's a remembering. Yeah. It's a remembering as well as a return. And you so beautifully, you know, put that down in the the story of the Buffalo sol- soldiers in your novel, Gloria Land. And I can feel that it is gospel for you. And it's so beautifully written. We're going to link to your book as well in the notes here. But before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you just a few more sort of rapid fire questions. Um, sure. You know, when you're getting outside, maybe in maybe into new places, maybe to places you've been. Is there any piece of um, hiking or camping gear that's had an outsized effect on your enjoyment of the outdoors and of people that are new to it, um, especially they're looking for these things? What's going to make us comfortable and, and increase the enjoyment of that experience? Anything that comes to mind for you? No, I would say the most obvious thing is don't go alone. Yeah. It's not just a safety thing, although it, you know, it, does, it does play out that people who hike alone are taking a greater risk. You may not, you may or may not have cell reception. I would always assume if you're going into a wilderness area or a national park that you don't have cell reception. So you will act accordingly in terms of your planning. But, um, but I would say that in general, the best thing to do is just to go out with an open heart and an open mind and an open spirit. And I say that intentionally because there are people in this world who have a closed heart, a closed mind and a closed spirit. So open that within you to what you're about to experience. And that's the, you then become the treasure chest waiting to be filled. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's treasure that will not, uh, it'll not evaporate. It will not fall apart through time. It will just stay there at the cellular level. And it can even be passed down to your kids. I mean, it's, it's an incredible experience because what we're really talking about more than anything else is, you know, there's that Greek myth of Antaeus where, Antaeus was this wrestler, and as long as his feet, his bare feet touched the ground, he could not be defeated. So how did Hercules mm-hmm. beat him? He literally uprooted him. He wrenched him from the earth itself, so he lost that visceral contact with the earth, and then he strangled him in midair. And what mm-hmm. I'm just describing for you is the Industrial Revolution. That's what the Industrial Revolution has done to us as a species. Mm-hmm. It is, we have intentionally allowed ourselves, like Antaeus, to be uprooted, and we have so forgotten that spiritual sacred connection with the earth that we no longer see the earth as sacred. We see it as a commodity and Mm. that which is commodified is no longer sacred by definition. So what we need to do, and this is why it's so important for kids to have these experiences in the parks is that when we take these kids into the parks, we restore the sacred perception of the earth for our children. Mm. And those children, when they grow up are much more likely to say, you shall not do that to the Grand Canyon. You shall not do that to that river. You shall not do that to the atmosphere that we breathe. Because that's what indigenous people have that, quote unquote, civilized people have lost. Civilized people have lost that innate ancestral connection to the earth, the indigenous connection to the earth. We can make ourselves indigenous again. That is the most powerful of pursuits to make yourselves rooted to the ground beneath your feet. And everything that's happening right now, all the problems that we're having with regard to the environment is the result of that severance between the sacred, which is all around us and within us and the ground beneath our feet. Absolutely. I mean, you're not going to harm what you perceive yourself to be part of, right? And oh, when yeah, you, yeah. When you see yeah, something. it's in our language. How many folks here, if, you, if, you, if your best friend referred to his mom or her mom as a resource, you would probably recommend therapy. <laughs> right. Right. My mom and dad are not resources. My mom and dad, that's my mom and my dad. 
Yeah. They're, they're the people that, because of them, I'm here in this world. So, so, the, so words do matter. And if your words do not reflect that spiritual connection, if they don't reflect that actual relationship that you have with whatever it is that you're describing, then it's damaging that relationship. And our relationship with the land it has been so commodified so much of the, the, the arena of commerce has been, become so pervasive in our perception of land. When we see trees as board feet, we see a river and we think of hydroelectric power, we see a, a hillside and we're thinking ore, then we, we've turned the sacred into something that is dollarable, as John Muir once put it. Mm. And that's the beginning of literally that severance between ourselves and the sacred and the earth. Well, in order to keep that sacred alive um what's one final simple idea or quote or poetic rumination about our relationship with nature that you would like to leave our listeners with i would say it's it's the, the most important thing that we can do is get as many kids as possible so that they have that childhood experience of a national park or public lands i mean public lands is is a is a cold statement, you know. It doesn't. People don't just start going. Oh, I feel so nice now hearing the word or the phrase <laughs> "public lands." But what has more poetic poetry? What is in, in, inflected and 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 has that gravitas of of heart and spirit is when you say. I mean, just think of a, a of a, a litany of parks: Zion, Canyonlands, Wrangell St. Elias, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Arches, Great Smoky Mountains. Everglades. I mean, you just—it's like you're you're casting a spell just in the recitation of those names, and so that that spell that you're casting is a spell of recovery, is a spell of reinstituting ourselves into these environments that shaped the species that we have become. But but now's the time to go back. Now's the time to reconnect with that which we didn't lose, but we literally pushed away. And the parks provide that doorway. So we should all walk through if we have any hope of not just saving the world, but saving ourselves. Well, here's to looking for those doorways and making them accessible to everyone. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. To learn more about Shelton's work, search his name in YouTube and you'll find a treasure trove of his appearances and ideas, including a TED-style talk from the Chicago Humanities Fest called The Best Idea America Ever Had. You can find his book Gloryland for sale by any major bookseller and can catch some incredibly beautiful passages featuring Shelton in Ken Burns' America's Best Idea, the PBS series about the founding of our national park system. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction, See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'll be collecting these and playing one at the end of each episode moving forward. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.